American children spend four to seven minutes a day playing outdoors. That is 90% less time than their parents did. There's a significant emotional and cognitive price to pay for having so little exposure to nature. How to bring nature back into all of our lives and specifically how to raise a wild child. That's our topic in this hour here on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. This is an organic conversation and I'm Helga Helberg. We had several shows in the past on nature. We spoke with Richard Loof on nature deficit disorder, a condition now recognized in children as a result of not enough outdoor playtime. And we have spoken with experts on the significance of animals in our lives as a bridge into the natural world. Today I'm speaking with the author of a new book on how to raise a wild child. And that's also the title of his book, a perfect topic for the summer season, perhaps bringing up a few things for us to consider when we make plans for the next couple of months and hopefully beyond for the rest of our lives. In a world of electronics and phones and online games, we all more than ever need a healthy balance and some time off in which we don't look at our devices. We also have become master planners, so with perfect scheduled play dates and summer camps, how much unstructured environment do we expose ourselves and our children to on a regular basis? Those are the questions for this hour here on An Organic Conversation in this episode on how to raise a wild child. And trust me, this show is as important for the kids in our lives as it is for the child in all of us adults. That and so much more when we come back right after the break. I'm Helga Helberg, and this is An Organic Conversation.
How to Raise a Wild Child is our topic in this hour of an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and I'm grateful for the support of our underwriters. Thank you to Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and the culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at their campuses, as I have done becoming a nutrition consultant, or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or the culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. Thank you also to our partner Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables. Earl's Organic has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. If you want to offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients, Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. Com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Fry Vineyards is dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming. Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines from Mendocino County at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. I'm Helge Helberg. This is An Organic Conversation, and our topic is, once again, nature. What's the role of nature, and how can we perhaps bring in more nature into our lives, specifically for children, as recent science has shown the critical importance of regular exposure to nature for our young ones? And I'm excited to be speaking with the author of a new book on how to raise a wild child, which is also the title How to Raise a Wild Child. That's author, biologist, and educator Scott Sampson, who's joining me today from Vancouver, British Columbia. Scott, are you with us? I sure am, and thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah. We've had the topic of nature in various forms, through animals, through food. So we've spoken with Richard Louf about nature deficit disorder, and we came across your book, and uh, it's a continuation of your amazing work of combining science and deep care for both the environment as well as, in this case, children. Of course, you are the host of PBS Kids Dinosaur Train, And you're also fairly recently, I believe, the CEO and president of Science World now. Can you tell us a little bit about Science World and your new role there? Sure. I am in all of week two here at Science World, <laughs> and it's an exciting, overwhelming, exhilarating time. Um, I came here because Science World is this phenomenal, world-class science center in Vancouver, BC. Uh, Vancouver, as you may know, is a green city and cares very much about the environment and science world is already heading in that direction. So it seemed like a really great fit for me and I'm thrilled to be here. And what's the objective of science world? What do you do there and, and what does science world do? Well, one of the things I'm doing here is asking people, well, what should science world be for the future? Certainly for the past and science world has been around since about 1988, 89, And it's become an amazing place to bring children to learn about science, get inspired about science. And so I'm asking the staff and the volunteers and the board and other people, is that what Science World is going to be going forward? What does this institution need to be for the province of British Columbia at this moment in its history? And it's kind of an exciting time. It's not every day you get to sort of rethink the meaning of an institution. 
Yeah, wonderful. And that's scienceworld.ca, scienceworld.ca, focused on British Columbia, but really lots to learn for all of us, really anywhere, wherever you may be. Um, and that leads us right to today's topic, your new book, How to Raise a Wild Child. Uh, in my intro, I talked about a, a rather disturbing statistic that American children spend about four to seven minutes on average a day playing outdoors. Uh, it says that it's 90% less time than their parents did, uh, I guess, when they were children. I would love to know, children in nature, let's start with actually parents. How much time do parents spend nowadays Uh, on an average in, in nature? Uh, how connected or disconnected are we really as a society? Yeah, that's a great question. I have not seen any recent statistics on the amount of time that grown-ups spend in nature, but we do know that it is significantly reduced than what it was um, a generation or so ago, that we too have undergone an indoor migration, that is the grown-ups in the past generation, And we are far more technologically biased in what we're doing. So the average uh, American kid spends on the order of seven to ten hours a day looking at screens now. And the parents are not far behind. Um, so we are extremely obsessed with our gadgets. And that's in many respects preventing us from going out and really engaging with the natural world as fully as we might. And let's be realistic. If we don't have the value of connecting with nature, it's very unlikely that our children will either. So the best way to connect kids with nature is to take them there and to show them that you have that value as well. Yeah, that, that was really striking in your book, How to Raise a Wild Child. Of course, lots of activities or, or ideas of why this is important for children and how to do it. But you are teaching adults as much. What is your experience with that through your, your work with, with science and kids in, in, in your role hosting the dinosaur train? How much are you actually addressing parents as well in all your work? Yeah, it's interesting. I've spent much of the past year traveling the continent talking about this topic, and I have yet to be challenged by a, uh, an adult who says, I don't think kids need nature. <laughs> uh, it is the norm. Luckily. We yeah, but we, I think we accept that this is an important thing. Mm -hmm. We just aren't doing it for the kids in our lives. And there's lots of reasons why. I mean, there's the technology reason. There's the fear reason that we're afraid to let our kids go outside in the way that many of us played outside as kids. There's the fact that kids are overscheduled. And nature just gets lost in the mix. Um, and so what I always talk about with parents is just make it a priority. If you think, if you agree after reading this book or just on your own that nature is a fundamental part of being a kid, then schedule it into their lives if you have to. You know, treat it like music lessons and say, okay, three times a week for at least 30 minutes, I'm going to get the kids outside in just unstructured outdoor play. So go into soccer practice doesn't count. You know, it's this whole thing about unstructured play that kids really need. And we know that this is critical for childhood brains and that they're really not, and bodies for that matter, and that they're just not getting it these days. 
Let's talk about that a little bit more, unstructured play. It's a term I heard just a few weeks ago mentioned in science and the importance of that, where kids are confronted with the need to, I guess, improvise or to manage almost a crisis situation or, or just plain boredom, I guess. What do kids find in nature? Can you share some of the stories that you have observed? It seems nature is the ultimate unstructured play, and yet nature does provide this amazing framework that is a given environment. Yeah, I have a uh, a daughter who's 13 years old now, and watching her grow up actually in the uh, Northern California area and play with other kids, and then comparing that play to what they do indoors when they're playing with, you know, dolls or other toys. And the thing about nature is that it is full of loose parts, whether it's rocks or branches or pine cones or water or dirt or all these things. And the number one toy in the National Toy Hall of Fame, I didn't even know such a thing existed until I wrote this book, is the stick. And it's because sticks can be used for so many different things, an infinite number of things. A Barbie doll or a G.I. Joe is exactly that. But a stick can be a scepter, a lightsaber, you know, a drawing implement, a cane, all these different things. So it really allows innovation. And it turns out that kids are far more innovative and imaginative um, in outdoor play, that they play longer, they play better together, there's less bullying and things like that. Um, and kids just engage more. And we all want our kids to grow up to be creative and innovative, and they need to work their minds to do that. And the best way to do that is to provide opportunities for them to engage their minds in this kind of free or unstructured play. And a lot of kids just aren't getting much of it these days. We choreograph their lives kind of to the nth degree. I'm speaking with Scott Sampson, author paleontologist, biologist, and educator, the author of How to Raise a Wild Child. In this hour of an organic conversation, children and nature, a crucial connection. Scott, let's talk about, and we will, we will dive into the, the benefits or really what's at stake if we do or if we don't spend time in nature in a minute. But going back to those four to seven minutes a day playing outdoors on average, for me, that's a, a number that almost seems obsolete. Four minutes, is there a benefit to four to seven minutes still? Or is that so little time at this point that it will not have much or any impact on a child or on an adult? When does time in nature begin to really matter? Have you observed or looked at that? Yeah, and I, I studied that when I was writing this book, and I've not found any solid data on exactly how many minutes a day it takes to start of form that emotional bond. And part of the problem, or the, the health effects, part of the problem is that um, for much of this, you'd need to have long-term data, and we just don't have that. People have only begun to really do these kinds of studies in the past sort of 15 to 20 years, with the bulk of them being in the past 10 years or so. So we now know that time out in nature uh, reduces anxiety. It reduces stress level, um, the hormone cortisol, reduces heart rate. Um, and so it has all these uh, positive effects on us, whether we're kids or grown-ups. Um, the effects on kids growing up is harder to document, once again, because you'd need to have long-term studies, mm -hmm. and those just haven't been done yet. But we do know a lot from the neuropsychologists 
from the eco-psychologists, from neurophysiologists. So there's a number of areas of science, and I talk about these in the book, that are pointing at the fact that kids need this form of unstructured outdoor play. And the outdoors is important because it, it taps into all of our senses. When you're looking at a screen and typing away, you're really only using your eyes, maybe your ears. When you're out in nature, you literally engage all of your senses. And the bulk of us who are over the age of 30 or 40 grew up with this. We played outside all the time. Yes. I mean, I remember going outside on a Saturday morning and my mother telling me, come back in when the streetlights come on, you know. Mm-hmm. And I kind of remember, I sometimes wonder if I remember the, hearing the door lock behind me as I went outside. Like it was just one of those things we just all went outside and played. And that was totally the norm. And I'm not trying to get us to go back to some bygone age. Rather, we need to embrace technology and nature. And as Richard Louv and others have argued, the more technology we have, the more nature we need. So it's a matter of balancing the two to create and uh, foster really healthy kids. So through your work as the host of PBS Kids Dinosaur Train, and of course now as the CEO and president of Science World in in Vancouver, British Columbia, in in looking back, how much, if you had to put a number on it, what, what seems like a healthy amount of of time in nature? Is it really, if you spend three hours on your devices, you need to spend three hours in nature? Or can you say that after really an hour of real play in nature, you have adopted to that natural environment and have received the benefits? And of course, longer is better, but is there, is there a number you can, you can name? Yeah, I think we have a pretty good idea of some of this. And uh, it depends on what your goal is. Mm -hmm. If your goal is to help your children relax, and feel less anxiety. Kids on, for example, on the autism spectrum often do better outside. Kids who have attention deficit disorder do very well with play. But if you want your kids to feel those immediate sort of physiological effects, 15 to 20 minutes can even have an effect, but I would say a minimum of a half hour. If your goal on the other hand, and that's a half hour in a day, so you probably want to do that at least sort of a minimum of three days a week and better to shoot for five or six days a week. Mm -hmm. If your goal, on the other hand, is to help your children form a deep connection with nature, to actually learn to love nature, then I would say it would take a lot more time. And you need that abundant, unstructured play. And I don't know, I wouldn't even want to hazard a guess at the numbers because we just don't have the science to back it up. But that would include a lot of time in local nature. And a lot of people think that you've got to go out to wilderness to find nature, and it's just not true. Um, in fact, a deep connection with the natural world occurs close to home. It doesn't occur, occur through the once or twice a year trip to the local national park or to the national park that's far away, I should say. Or to the ocean. It's that, yeah. yeah, it's that neighborhood time. Mm-hmm. So just having that abundant neighborhood play is really what it's all about. And we want to talk about if it matters what the child does doing that play, how much engagement can be created. And here's some examples um, in your book that you're describing the importance and what could be done, How to Raise a Wild Child is that book. And we are speaking with the author, Scott Sampson, today. He is, of course, the host of PBS Kids Dinosaur Train and also very recently has become the CEO and president of Science World at Tell Us World of Science, British Columbia. 
in Vancouver, scienceworld.ca, the website, and also, Scott, your own website is scottsampson.net. Scott, stay with us. We'll take a very quick break, and we'll be right back with so much more. This is An Organic Conversation, and I'm Helge Helberg. This show is brought to you by Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. That's equalexchange.coop. And by Utterly, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. That's U-T-T-E-R-L-Y dot C-O. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. Our topic in this hour is how to raise a wild child. American children spend four to seven minutes a day playing outdoors. That's about 90% less time than their parents did at their age. And of course, we're spending an unbelievable amount of time on our devices and on technology. We're speaking about the importance of nature and how to bring nature back, all part of Uh, Scott's new book, How to Raise a Wild Child. Scott is the CEO and president of Science World. That's scienceworld.ca and also the host of PBS Kids Dinosaur Train. Scott, thanks again for joining us. And just before the break, we talked about 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour, depending on what your goal is for the child, depending on how much nature time, because it is really almost a medicine the child needs and, and what your objectives are. Does it matter what the child does? Could you just lay on a, on a meadow or on the sand on, at, a, at a beach and look at the clouds? Like what kind of quality of engagement are we talking about when we are speaking about being in nature? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, the thing, Helge, about um, nature play is that it, it needs to be driven by kids. So if the grown-ups are saying, hey, let's go and play this game or we'll play hide-and-seek or kick the can and you go over here and you do this, that's not free play or unstructured play. The kids need to make the games. Now, kids are driven to play, especially in early childhood. That's what they are born to do, and they do it naturally. They don't even need to know each other's names, as any parent could tell you. So the key is to just let them roam and do what they want to do. And sometimes there's quiet moments when they're lying on a log and sometimes they're running around screaming and the log is the spaceship or pirate ship. So it's the kids who are driving the games and they make up their own rules. And that's what 
that free play or nature play really needs to be as much as possible. Well, that's interesting. You you started actually this interview by pointing out the importance of, of unstructured time. You know, we all live in perfect summer camps. We live in, in a world where uh, all the play dates are somewhat structured and, and have a theme where adults basically created this schedule for the child. So when, when I hear you speak about nature, it seems like the, the direct correlation of just expose them to nature and let them figure it out themselves is as important. Absolutely. And the other thing that we have to do is let kids go and take a few risks. I mean, I'll bet you every adult that would listen to this remembers being a child and climbing trees and playing in mud and throwing rocks and playing with sticks. And yet these days when kids try and do that kind of thing, we often tell them, no, put that stick down, stay out of the mud, and for goodness sake, get out of that tree. And that doesn't help the kid because kids need to take those risks. They are built to take those risks. And in fact, we know that teens especially are going to take risks. And if they've not had any experience dealing with risks earlier in childhood, they're going to struggle with it as teens. So one of the keys to being a good nature mentor to the children in your life is just getting out of the way and letting them play. And one of the pieces of advice I give in the book is, you know, we all hear about Uh, helicopter parenting, the parent that just hovers over the kid all the time and makes sure they don't get in trouble. And there's a, a woman, a blogger, who came up with the notion of hummingbird parenting, where you stay back on the periphery and you let the kids do their thing. And as the children get older, you increase the distance between you and them, and you only zoom in when absolutely necessary to help them out. And otherwise, you sort of sit back at the periphery. And the kids will let you know what that distance needs to be. The younger they are, the closer they need to be with you. But the older they get, the more they want that autonomy. So give it to them. And that way you can sort of keep an eye on them and make sure they're not, you know, jumping off buildings. But they are still able to go out and have fun and take some risks. Yeah, interesting. My parents, of course, never told me, go to the little creek that we had and get your rubber boots filled with water as you're building a dam. That was what came up, right? That's what, what we were doing, the neighbor kids. Is there a role for the parent, though, to encourage a, a certain behavior or a certain risk-taking uh, as children are already so removed from nature? Or have you seen that, that the moment they are exposed to nature, they'll just, they get it. Ten minutes later, they're off Uh, you know, in the trees and doing their thing. How much is this? Well, the, the, yeah, it's yeah. a good question. And I think the younger the child, the more they need some parental permission. Mm -hmm. So I start off this book, How to Raise a Wild Child, by talking about a story that took place in my hometown here of Vancouver, B.C. And my mother took me to the forest and we walked to this pond because she knew that there were tadpoles in the pond. She'd heard from other people. And she let me walk into the pond in my big rubber boots until one flooded, and then another flooded, and I was picking up these handfuls of tadpoles and letting them go, and I kept walking out into the pond, and I looked back at her to see if she was okay with it, and she just smiled and encouraged me to go on. I ended up going out into the waters between my waist and my chest, and I was completely immersed in that place, and to this day, that was one of the pivotal moments of my life. It was a moment when... I felt like there was no separation between me and the natural world. 
And I could not express it, of course, at the time, but looking back on it as an adult, it was pivotal. And I became a dinosaur paleontologist traveling all over the world and living in tents and far off lands. And in part, that was because of experiences like that one earlier in my life. And I sort of hate to think what how my life might have been different if I hadn't been encouraged to take those kinds of little risks when I was a kid. And especially looking back to your mother in that moment and seeing her smile as you go out into the world, there are so many more levels that are being touched around parenting and, and around the control of parents and trusting the child Uh, making even mistakes. You could have slipped and, you know, fallen completely in. But there's this element in your story that I feel of safety. And yes, the mom is still there and she approves as you make your own way through the nature of life. Was that an element that you recognized when, when that oh, happened or later? Yeah. And it's funny, I'm not sure if my mother ever thought about the fact that she was a great nature mentor, but she surely is. And Too often these days when we're out with kids, it's always the opposite. Even when we're out in natural areas or city parks or, or national parks, signs are always saying, stay on the trail, don't touch this, take away only photographs, leave only footprints and stuff. And that's just not how you form a deep bond with nature. Yeah. And I think a lot of these parks, uh, these park managers and that are shooting themselves in the foot because the decision to protect these places is made by every generation. And if people don't form a connection with those places, an emotional connection, they may not decide to keep those places protected when they grow up. And we need to let kids get out there. I mean, nature connection is a contact sport, and both kids and nature can take it. And that doesn't mean we let them run wild through all of our uh, national parks, but we can carve aside areas where kids can go and pick flowers and climb trees and break branches because they need to be doing that as well. Great point. Children in nature, a crucial connection today on an organic conversation. And of course, this is Scott Sampson, the author of a new book, How to Raise a Wild Child. Scott, when we talk about the importance of your work and the importance of that book and the importance of nature in our lives, both as children as in adults, can you, you touched on that a little bit, but what has been studied recently? What are the scientifically proven benefits of spending time in nature? You mentioned less bullying. There's, there's emotional, there's cognitive uh, benefits. Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, we, let's start with the bodily benefits. There's all kinds of evidence that, as I said a little earlier, that being in nature reduces stress and anxiety. It has immediate positive effects on our bodies. Mm -hmm. But if we just stick um, primarily to growing kids, it affects their bodies in the sense that kids who play in natural play settings have better agility, balance, motor control in general, because They're playing on unbalanced, uneven surfaces. You know, compare climbing on a set of monkey bars to climbing in an honest-to-goodness tree where the branches are unevenly spaced and things like that. So kids physically do better. Then when you think about the cognitive end of things and, and how their minds grow up, there's all kinds of evidence about how brains grow. And it turns out that the brain of a child is very different than that of, a, of an adult It is far more interconnected 
than those of, uh, of um, adults. And so we can compare a child's brain to the interwoven streets of Paris and the brain of an adult to, you know, a, a bunch of superhighways with a few connections. So kids are able to make connections between vast numbers of things, often better than grown-ups can, but the connections that they use are the ones that get saved. So if kids don't use the connections that are involved with using all their senses or being creative um, and innovative as they make up games and do all those things, they will, it's not that they lose the ability entirely, but it will be compromised. So the brains of kids will be impoverished, I think, is what the, the evidence is suggesting if we don't give those kids outdoor time. And then if you go to the emotional end of things, we know that if you want your a kid to grow up loving nature, there's really two ingredients. And that is abundant time in nearby wild or semi-wild nature. And once again, that can be very close to home. And the companionship of an, of an adult to share in the journey. And so adult nature mentors don't need to be experts. In fact, they don't need to know anything about nature, but they do need to value it and they do need to get kids out into it. So those two things are the critical elements in helping kids form an emotional bond with the natural world. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Hellberg, and I'm speaking with Scott Sampson about his new book, How to Raise a Wild Child. Let's talk about that book, Scott. It's such a great title. Tell us about your book. What inspired you to write it, and what are you trying to, to evoke with it? Well, um, I've been part of the children and nature movement for um, a number of years. I'm friends with Richard Louvre, and I'm a great admirer of his work and his, particularly his book, Last Child in the Woods, which helped to launch the children and nature movement. But I, I noticed in looking at this a few things. One is that the movement is still largely white and affluent, and we need this to be a movement for all kids, regardless of skin color or family income. So that was one thing. And the other thing I noticed is that when I went out looking for a book that could talk about how kids connect with nature, there wasn't a single book that put it all in one place for parents and teachers and other caregivers. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wrote this book almost as a sequel to Last Child in the Woods. That book rang the alarm bell about the importance of this issue and launched a movement and legislation at the state and national levels. This book, How to Raise a Wild Child, is really a tool that can provide grown-ups with the ability to go and start connecting kids with nature today for free. It doesn't cost a cent, and that's one of the great things about getting kids outside. And it provides a whole range of tools um, that can be applied at any age, from early childhood, literally from birth, through middle childhood, those elementary school years, through adolescence. And... Of course, the process of connecting with nature changes at, uh, at those different ages. A teen needs something very different than a toddler when it comes to getting excited about the natural world, and I tried to cover all of that in this book. What kind of tools are you talking about when, if somebody listens to this and is interested in, in getting a copy of How to Raise a Wild Child, what would they find? Well, I think... The most important thing is that we need to respond to the longings that kids have at each of these ages. So in early childhood, the longing is all about unstructured play. And it's something that, once again, we're not giving kids enough of these days. But if we just get them out into the natural setting, they're the experts. They'll do it, and they'll have a great time. In middle childhood, 
The longing is about showing competence. This is the age where around the world kids are put to work because they're able to do new things, whether that's fetching water or working in the fields or, you know, helping fix computers for that matter. Kids develop competencies in that middle childhood age between about 6 and 11. Once they get into adolescence, it changes again, and kids really want two things, and they aren't necessarily the things that jump to mind for teens. Primarily, it's taking risks and being with their peers. And the best of all is to take risks with their peers. And whereas in early childhood, grown-ups are, or adults, I should say, and parents in particular, are the best nature mentors, once kids get to be teens, they're not really looking to be around their parents at all. What we need is a 20-something mentor who can make sure the kids stay out of trouble, but will go and have these experiences. And that's where models like Outward Bound are so effective. And the older kids get the notion, the, the more the notion of wildness changes. A backyard with a little grass and water and mud can be plenty wild for a toddler or even a four or five-year-old, whereas a teen may need to get out into true wilderness sometimes to experience that, to, to really understand what that feels like. Yeah, well, there is a there's a whole notion, a cultural piece that is missing, which is, of course, the transition between young adult and adult. Uh, we don't really initiate our boys or girls anymore. And so often in culture, that is done or was done through nature, through a really beautiful time a few days or so somewhat orchestrated and also left on their own devices in nature uh, we don't have that anymore so what you're speaking of is basically bringing back nature as a method or environment to to initiate us as as human beings is that is that right yeah i think so and as i said i don't want listeners to misunderstand this as some wish to go back to nature and give up uh, our high-tech present and future, sure. te technology can even help us connect with nature at times. Yes, we need to unplug and really experience the full effects of the natural world. Um, I'm looking at an image on my computer screen right now, which is a little ironic, but it's a, a tent in a beautiful place um, uh, in the middle of the night with the Milky Way going overhead. We need to have those kinds of experiences, but our, our handheld devices can help us find geocaches, they can help us identify stars and planets and rocks and animals and plants. Um, we can use them to upload data that can be used by scientists to, to look at the migration patterns of, for example, birds and the effects of climate change on, the, on those patterns. So there's lots of ways to integrate technology with our nature experiences. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, that was my last question. We are almost out of time, unfortunately, but I do want to dive into that topic just a little bit more. When we talk about nature and technology, we usually mean a separation between the two. We say, you know, we spend two hours a day in nature and we spend four hours a day on our devices or whatever. It's like, like how can we turn off that world of technology And there's a place for that where we do need to get away from our devices and pay full attention and be present to the wonders of the natural world. But you're saying in addition to that, there's also a role of technology in which we experience and exchange and share 
our experiences in nature. Is that both exists? Yeah, I think we can have both. Rich Lewis called it the hybrid mind, and there's other kinds of terms for it. But it turns out that we ha- there's two major kinds of attention. And toddlers are really good at one of the kinds of attention, which is very broad, and it looks like they, they have the attention span of a gnat, but it turns out that's not the case. Toddlers are just focusing on everything around them instead of one thing at a time. Whereas when we get older, we learn how to really focus our attention, um, kind of like a spotlight. And that's the kind of attention we use to read or to work on a computer or to look at our, our um, cellular devices. And we need a balance of both. And right now, we're just getting that second, more focused kind. And we're losing that first kind, which is where we really open up our senses. So we do need a balance of those things. And technology can be one of those things to even help launch us outside. I I know of a father that I met recently down in uh, Alabama who said, listen, I use geocaching to get my kid outside. And that's what he wants to go do. And so we go out treasure hunting for geocaches on weekends out in forests. And it is absolutely wonderful. So we can really get both in our lives and be healthy. In fact, I think we need to embrace both technology and nature in order to raise a really healthy next generation. Great. Well, now you have to explain what geocaching is for the people who listen who don't know, <laughs> because you mentioned it two or three times, and yeah, I know we will get that. dozens of emails asking how to do that. Uh, yeah, how, how do you do it? it? It's, a, it's a really simple <laughs> thing to do, and you can download an application, an app that will allow you to geocache, and basically there are millions of these things hidden all over the world. I'm sure there's some in every city in the country now. And you can go and you're using your phone and the geolocating ability, the GPS application on your phone, go and find these things and and you'll find where they're located. They're hidden. You can open it up and often there'll be a little note in there that you can read or you can take something and leave something behind. It depends on the kind of geocache that it is. So it really is just a mini treasure hunt. And some of them take place in cities. Many of them take place in rural areas. And some of them are way out there in the wilderness. Scott, great work as always. Uh, Scott Sampson, of course, the host of PBS Kids Dinosaur Train. You're continuing your work to bring us the world of nature closer, in this case, through your book, How to Raise a Wild Child. You're also the president and CEO of Science World at Tell Us World of Science. That's scienceworld.ca. Thank you so much for making time to be on the show uh, with us today. And please thank your mom for making you such a critical part of the conversation around nature. <laughs> Helgi, thank you. Thank you very much. It's really great talking to you today, Helga. And I um, hope to have a chance to do this again. We will. Thank you so much. Okay. Cheers. Of your work. Take care. Bye-bye. Again, that's Scott Sampson, author, paleontologist, biologist, and, yes, educator. His own website is scottsampson.net. I'm Helge Helberg. This is An Organic Conversation. And in this hour, we looked at the connection between children and nature. Switching from nature around us to the nature on our plates, we are getting the update from the world of healthy produce, fruits and vegetables, the update from the San Francisco produce dock. Here is what's in season.
Our weekly segment, Earl Herrick, the voice of the San Francisco produce market, really Mr. Organic for the country at this point. The closest update from the fields as a wholesale distributor of solely organic fruits and vegetables. Earl, do we have you on the line? Hello, Helga. <laughs> Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for making space for us. And mm -hmm. yeah, wow, we're still in July. It's happening. What's, what's going on? Everything continues. Uh, you know, I think, I think big, <laughs> big figs are coming in now in the next week or two, and we still have the big wow. stone fruit rush. Today we're going to do a little something different. We're going to have a gentleman that's been working with me for the last year or so, Anthony Marichata. We're really happy to have him with us. He comes with some a great, interesting background, and he's been doing some interesting things, which he's about ready to tell you. So Excellent. And the phone over to Anthony. Great. Talk to you Put him on. Yes, talk to you next week. Hello. Anthony, so great to have you. Yeah, no, this is uh, really fantastic to be a part of this. I'm glad to be here. Yes, the weekly update from the world of healthy fruits and vegetables, organic produce. You guys are really at the heartbeat of where the movement is at every week as things come into your warehouse and you're working with growers all over uh, the wider Bay Area and beyond on the perfect harvest. What's what's going on for you this week? What are you, What's our focus? It's been really exciting as as Earl introduced myself. Um, you know, I, I've been here just under two years now, so I'm kind of seeing the second wave of the of the seasonal movement and just kind of staying ahead of it all and uh, and seeing nice. what's next and, and <laughs> being there on the front lines to share that info and, the, and this great product with uh, with all of our customers. And that's great because the first year you're just overwhelmed and taking everything in. Now you have some, you have a reference point, right? You, it's the second year you kind of you got the first year under your belt, and it's the you know second time stone fruit comes around. We talked about that last week, and and so you know the produce items are repeating themselves as the season is repeating itself. Always different, but um, what is your main item of interest right now? So right now, what is really exciting and something that I've I've been interested in and for quite a while is uh, heirloom tomatoes. Hmm. So um, we and something that's new and exciting, especially for me, is we actually just started working with a new younger farmer in uh, in the Santa Barbara area of Goleta, California, down on the coast. And him and I, Jack Motter, is the uh, the farmer, and we've kind of grown together so far this season with uh with really seeing what works for him and his farm and also you know what's working for us up here yeah i think we talked about jack with earl in earlier this year he had visited jack and his new operation and jack was planning on putting some heirloom tomatoes in that's the same operation right it is yes uh both robert the director of purchasing at earl's and yes. um, and earl himself were down there uh you know a couple months before before my time i was there a couple weeks ago now sometime in the middle of june before everything started really started getting going now we're, we're starting to see the the harvest ramp up as the weather warms and continues in that direction so um it's it's been a really exciting time for uh for all of us here yeah and jack really symbolizes this so needed new generation of young farmers you know to, in, in the next 10 years we will lose about a million farmers in this country uh, to retirement the the average age of the american farmers 58 56 60 years old so 
that will need to be replaced. And the only way to replace it, of course, is through this new movement of young farmers who are deciding to make that their livelihood and career. And, and Jack seems to be one of those really inspired individuals to do that. Is that what's your take on, on, on Jack himself? Yeah, no, that, that is exactly it. When I was down there, I could really see that with what he was doing and also speaking to him about it. You know, it's his story is one of a, a young farmer really entirely driven by the passion for organic. And, um, and that really comes through in his product and the relationship and the understanding of it all. And um, what also makes Jack a, a very interesting subject is um, he comes from a farm family out of the Imperial Valley of California more in the high desert, and um, his, his family farms and has farmed uh, for a couple generations out there, mm. about 2,500 acres, all conventional, uh, a handful of commodities, including sugar beets. Sure. And he went to college out around Santa Barbara and kind of fell in love with the area and started moving into, you know, small gardening plots and um, always organic and, and expanding acre, acreage. And um, now he is actually on a very beautiful piece of land in, in the canyon country. And it's actually uh, a farm that used to be called a growing concern, which um, has a great history in the organic movement in California and especially the area on the California coast. Nice. So um, he is kind of revitalizing that farm, bringing it back up to speed. There, there were a few years where that farm sat vacant, and um, and now he's getting in there and kind of seeing what works best and, uh, and you know, getting back into the soil. And he is very excited, and it's really showing in his product. <laughs> That's lovely. Well, we're almost out of time, but I do want your take on this year's heirloom tomato quality varieties season. Have we seen enough heat? What's the? Have you tried some? Are they ready yet? Where, where, where are we at with heirloom tomatoes? Yeah, so actually they're pretty much in full swing coming out of the Cape Valley, the winters area right now. There's um, there's a couple great growers up there that are experiencing some really hot hot temperatures and and kind of peaking, you know, into the the beginning of August. And um, actually, you know, the the guys and the farms around Santa Barbara are a little bit further behind. They actually get uh, cooler weather through the month of June. The, the so-called June gloom kind of keeps the, the sun out of that area and keeps mm. things cooler until, you know, we start getting into July where we are now. So um, things are really starting to crank up out of uh, more, you know, central California. But we are flush right now with, um, you know, plenty of beautiful mixed heirloom packs, you know, packing 12 different varieties, the Berkeley tie-dye, black pineapple, the Cherokee chocolate, and the favorite brandy wine and Cherokee purple and um, also some really, really tasty uh, mixed medley cherry tomatoes uh, coming from the same growers right now. Mm, amazing. Okay, so heirloom tomatoes are at their peak at this point, and this will continue, what, throughout August, September? Yeah, throughout August and September, and, um, you know, the flavor of those tomatoes kind of changes with the life of the plant, the weather that they experience, as well as the, the sure. moisture. So, you know, definitely get out there and uh, and try different colors different different sizes uh find out what you like because uh, they all have their own their own taste their own history 
and um, really the region that they're grown in also affects their uh, their taste. So uh, really get out there and see what you like. Fantastic. Oh, my God. So good. Thank you, Anthony. I know many listeners will drop it now and get some heirloom tomatoes. That's the item of the week, heirloom tomatoes and the update from Jack. What's his name again? Full name and farm name? Uh, Elwood Canyon Farm. And that's uh, Jack Jack Motter out of Goleta, California. Wonderful. Great. Thank you so much, Anthony. Pleasure to have you. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll follow up with you again throughout the season on other items that you are focusing on. Thanks for being on the show today. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Bye. (laughs) Bye. That's What's in Season with Earl Herrick today with Anthony, Earl's buyer, with a farm update from Jack Motter about heirloom tomatoes. That's the item of the week. And that sums up another episode of An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Hilberg. We'll be back with another episode next week. See you then. Bye-bye. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you also to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes and your daily dose of inspiration, Find us on Facebook and Instagram at An Organic Conversation and on Twitter at Talk Organic. I'm Helga Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then.